You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of the closing plenary address, which is given by Dr. Dina Rankin from Royal Holloway, University of London. Her paper was entitled Borderlines, Gender, Genre and Geography in 17th Century Ireland. It's a lovely introduction. Um, thanks to the organisers for inviting me. It's a real pleasure and an honour to be here. Uh, last night I went home and rewrote various points. Today, if I had an evening, I would probably be rewriting various points. So forgive me. And uh, It's been a tremendously inspiring um, couple, of, couple of days. Thank you. I've just altered, really, the... the uh, bits of my title, so I'll be going geography, gender, and then a little bit on genre. So, geography, noticing borders, I'm going to call the first bit, borders, hard, soft, and liquid. It's very hard not to notice borders at the moment, or rather not to hear the constant babble about borders. A certain critical discourse one might think of as dominant among the liberal elites since about the mid-1980s has argued for the need to erase borders, to embrace as regards human rights, identity, bodies, ecological survival, beyond border universal. We must think big, the argument still just about goes, and we must conjure with the interesting spectra of what it means to be human to be in the world. Meanwhile, that dominant political discourse of our current moment seeks all over the place to reconstitute borders, to legislate for distinction, to embrace the island nation, to take back control, to restore the binary superstructures of identification. We must, we're told, build a wall. Now, in the recent... um, context paper on Brexit and the Irish border that was jointly published by the RIA and the British Academy, Professor Mary Daly reminds us of the realities of border making in 1921. The border itself was determined by county boundaries. I'll just read the bits of underline. Ten Irish counties, almost one third of the total, touched the border. There were 180 cross-border roads. 35 to 40 of these roads defined the border, but there were only 16 approved crossing borders. And the last fact, Donegal, the most northerly county in the Republic of Ireland, only shares a border of nine kilometres, that's six miles, with the rest of the state. Now, I'm interested in the place of county borders and county boundaries and county borders here. I'm really struck by the fact that people think of Irish counties or they're very often characterised I'm thinking of the recent ACES conference in Cork, um, as a 19th century phenomenon. So in this um, narrative, counties serve on the one hand as a very effective administration tool of the Victorian British Empire. They're used, for example, to organise the new Royal Irish Constabulary, the census, the local taxes. And on the other hand, and in direct response to their colonial function, 
counties also become a key unit of organisation for anti-colonial resistance, for home rule, Catholic emancipation, the Land League, the GAA. And as part of this resistance, there's also a growing number, a marked increase in the publication of local county histories. And should we all doubt still the pivotal importance of the county in the 19th century, then the additional evidence of the aggressive Victorian mapping and legislative exercises which preceded and informed partition seals the case. So the Ordnance Survey completed in 1846, the Local Government Ireland Act 1898, and the Government of Ireland Act 1920. And of course, for all of those us gathered here, this sounds very familiar. We get the sense of deja vu. For it wasn't in Victorian, but in Tudor and Stuart Ireland that the new generation of English colonists first formed up, legislated for, and rigorously mapped the Irish county borders that are still largely recognisable today. So if the Normans had begun the showering of Ireland following the English model after their 12th century invasion, it was going to be a long, slow process. Old Irish and Old English land ownership and inheritance patterns proved remarkably resilient to um, the, the, the imposition of metropolitan English legislation. It was not until 1606 that Wicklow, the last of the 32 counties, was created. So the powerful, resourceful Burns and O'Toole had asked Henry VIII to make the Wicklow a county on their own terms, but now they had to capitulate it to, to, to Chichester. As many of you will also know, a good deal of the county-making had been going on for the previous century, so, so the pace really picks up with the King's Act in 1541, when Henry VIII declared himself King of Ireland. And under the Tudors, aided by the persistence of the Lord Deputies, Radcliffe, Sydney, and Perrot um, in particular, most of Ireland was gradually carved up into counties as part of the English Protestant colonial project, the story goes. And by the time James came to the throne in 1603, only Ulster remained unshired. So Sydney had attempted it in 1575 to no avail. Parrot drew up county plans for Ulster in 1588, but these remained largely unenforceable while um, the O'Neill was still Earl of Tyrone. So after his defeat in the flight of the Earls in 1607, Parrot's county divisions were used as the basis for the Ulster plantation of 1609. The exact location of county borders, not to mention the exact relationships of counties to provinces, might still remain unclear. So Speed, who's been talked about quite a lot in the 1610 description of Ireland, shows a bit of confusion on that last point to how provinces and borders relate. But the county map of Ireland was very settled, in a way, by, by 1606, further enforced by Stafford's Civil, Sur Civil Survey in the 1630s, the Adventurers Act of 1641, and William Petty, of course, would finally engrave those county borders onto the Down Survey in 1656-8. It's worth noting that um, in political anatomy, Petty's one of the first to kind of say we could get customs on the new borders. He's always going to coin a penny if he possibly can. Anyway, so uh, in 1605 as David Edwards has pointed out in that terrific essay in the recent Cambridge, Cambridge history. Um, the newly appointed Attorney General for Ireland, Sir John Davies, drafted a proclamation which effectively abolished Tanistry and put Ireland under the English legal system of primogeniture male inheritance. So from now on, all Irish inhabitants would be, in Davies' words, quote, free, natural and immediate subjects of his majesty. 
So I'm going to kind of be returning to the matter of these and other words written by Davis in a moment, just to note for now, we've heard about it already, those musketeers in the corridor, that the free, natural and immediate subject had to be hounded for a while longer until eventually in the face of much anger and with a little bit of final gerrymandering of corporation boundaries, Davies, the king's appointed speaker, managed to produce the first ever Protestant majority in in an Irish parliament in 1613. Now, in 1612, the year before that Parliament assembled, Davies had published in London his discovery of the true causes why Ireland was never entirely subdued or brought under the obedience of the Crown of England until His Majesty's, that is, James I's happy reign. A second edition followed in 1613. And we forget that it remains a really influential text on Irish policy across the rest of the century and into the next. So it's published again in Restoration Dublin in 1664 and in 1666, and again in 1704, all by Samuel Dancer. He just slightly softens the title and calls it Historical Relations, or the Discovery of Why. So I want then just for a few minutes to turn. It's a well-known text. I feel like I might be going back to the 80s here, but just stay with me. Um, The well-known text in some detail to focus on how the word border and other related terms work in relation to Ireland in Davies' treaties. So it might be useful first to clarify for Davies what a border is not. It is not a frontier. That word occurs, occurs only once in the discovery, and it's used with reference to Richard I, who, in Davies' account, shows something of a dereliction of duty in Ireland. He leaves it to his brother John, while he, quote, went he in person to the Holy War, and after his delivery and return, hardly was he able to maintain a frontier war in Normandy, where, by hard fortune, he lost his life. So it's not then a frontier, the locus of war against a foreign nation. Ireland is instead an Ireland of borders, colonial, internal, and subject for centuries to what Davies terms with some disgust, quote, a continual bordering war between the English and the Irish. So the Holy War, the Frontier War, the Continuing Border War. The diminishing value of those different forms of war, I think, is clear in Davies' account. And the failure to properly guard or castle the borders established by the 12th century colonisation proves to be one of the true causes why Ireland was, to quote his title again, never entirely subdued. So James gets the praise for that. But previous kings also earn occasional praise. So King John, for example, is praised for giving order to the building of some castles upon the borders of the English colonies. But effective fortified military borders are rarely, if ever, in evidence in Davies Ireland. Borders are instead indeterminate, indefensible and lethal. Sir Richard II's last journey to Ireland, 1639... Sorry, sorry... 1399, following you. Um, that was a complete reversal, wasn't it? Um, Davies relates is to seek revenge for the fact that his lieutenant in Ireland and his heir presumptive, quote, the Earl of March was himself slain upon the borders of Meath. But little trip did the sorry, little good did the trip do him, for quote, he was no sooner returned into England, but those Irish lords laid aside their masks of humility and scorning the weak forces which the king had left behind him began to infest the borders. So it all sounds quite common. Infestation, contamination, deception, degeneration. 
these key features of life on the Irish borders are further highlighted when Davy's revenge narrative account of March's death, to give him his full title, The Death of Roger Mortimer, the 4th Earl of March and 6th of Ulster, is set next to the account preserved in the Wigmore Chronicle of that powerful family of the Welsh Marches, for it casts his death as a case of mistaken identity. March was not recognised by his attackers because he was dressed in Irish clothes at the time. So, March and borders. The death of the Earl of March gains further resonance when you hear it alongside that phrase, marches and borders, frequently employed by Davies again. The writing of Ireland under John and Richard, for example, Davies laments that, quote, the English colonies being dispersed in every part, province of this kingdom were enforced to keep lo- continual guards upon the borders and marches round about them. And that medieval term march used across Europe to designate a buffer zone between countries where dual legal rights could be negotiated, of course complicates the notion of a border, as if it were muddy in the clear blue waters of that imagined frontier still further. The Welsh marches, like the Scottish and York borders, came up in discussion after David's paper last night. In the early modern period, the Welsh marches and the Scottish borders, are con- and also the York borders, are associated with nothing but trouble, is a large number of pamphlets, for example, in the 1630s and 40s around the Bishops' Wars, which talk about that, and of course Shakespeare's history plays in the 1590s. So Irish marches may not feature so much in the early modern imagination. We think more of Irish bogs, perhaps. It's not in quite the same way. But Davies' historical imagine of the, quote, borders and marches of the pale those grey areas closest to the centre of English power, resonates and threatens in equal measure. And his image of unruly desolation under Edwards II and III is pretty apocalyptic. So, all the old colonies in Munster, Connacht and Ulster fell away. They remained under the obedience of the law, and yet the borders and marches thereof were grown unruly and out of order too, being subject to black rents and tributes of the Irish, which was a greater defection than when the ten of the twelve tribes departed and fell away from the kings of Judah. So King Solomon succeeded ten of the twelve tribes uh, leave. I, I don't know if that has anything to do with the ten tribes of Kilkenny. I've never thought quite about that before, but... So the reversion of the pale to wilderness is further underscored a few pages later. The marches and borders, which at that time were grown so large as they took up half Dublin, half Meath, and a third part of Kildare and Louth. So more than half the pale. Just to put it into some context with the Creton Histoire du Roi d'Angleterre, um, some images that we're all pretty familiar with that the art, uh, meeting Art of Wara, um, King when uh, King Richard is 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 here. Um, he's come at the start bit um, in a sort of very similar position. We have um, Henry of Monmouth, so the future Henry V being knighted in Ireland, because, of course, he comes over here to do his military training as a kind of hostage, again, with this great, I'm going to call them borders and marshes, being in the background. And just as illustrative of the aesthetic of this, I suppose, some, I, I came across this verse as the killing of the dragon 
by St. George. It's not. It's Alexander's battle with a hippopotamus like beast, apparently. <laughs> so, so, but basically, you get the general aesthetic of the ideas of there be dragons. Um, and that's mapped onto Ireland as a kind of painting practice, I think, at this, at this time in, 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 in thinking about Richard. <clears throat> For Davis, then, the ideal Ireland, as this discovery reveals, is one without internal physical borders, a place where showering, a county system, and civil government, legal and underwritten, ends that rancid, continual boarding war between the English and Irish that he talked about. Now, unsurprisingly, the discovery holds up the recent showering of Ulster, a process which Davis was closely involved with, and indeed, as we shall return to, lived right in the middle of, and probably benefited from as well. He holds that up as the crowning example of such transformation. And counties, to return to that starting point of the paper, are a crucial part of his work. For although there were six whole showers to be disposed, His Majesty gave not an entire country or county to any particular person, he writes. The careful establishment of counties, then, allows old power bases to be broken up, potential new power bases to be nipped in the bud, and the result is, surprise, surprise, a mixed plantation of British and Irish, which transforms not only the people but also the landscape. So crucially for Davis, the treacherous possibilities of borders and marches will be cleared and cultivated simply through the clearing and moving of their inhabitants. Only the the Irish were in some places transplanted from the woods and mountains into the plains and open countries, that being removed like wild fruit trees, they might grow the milder and bear the better and sweeter fruit. Gardening, grafting, fruit, production... They're all familiar tropes to us, and they all displace the marches and borders. It's all going to become part of that settler adventure rhetoric that gets adopted by the adventures of the Heartlip Circle later in the century. And in that imagined perfected world, the marches are gone, and only borders, and the only borders remaining in Ireland are going to be the carefully cultivated, manicured borders of gardeners. So to quote that anonymous 1644 poem, A Looking Glass of the World or the Plundered Man in Ireland, he imagines, terrible verse, the gardener doth clip and pare to trim his walks and borders square. He raises pleasant mounts to find and seated arbours covered with woodbind. His scansion's not so good. So just to go back to Davis one last time in this section, the ideal thoroughly counted Ireland of the discovery is entirely free from borders. It's an island nation. So he writes, if according to the examples before recited, they have reduced as well the Irish counties and the English colonies under one form of civil government as they are now are, the mirrors and bounds of the borders and marches and borders had been long since worn out and forgotten. But that is not fit, as Crembensis writes, that a king of an island should have any marches or borders but the four seas. So a final image there, the four seas of a clear, defensible border. It's very appealing. Thomas More, um, in Utopia, he's, the, the Utopians actually deliberately go out and cut off their land um, from the mainland. But the mainland is really close. It's, it's kind of quite interesting that, that we forget that about Utopia. Um, but it's also the closest that notion that um, Davis comes close to of a shore, that word which we often associate and is synonymous with, with borders. It doesn't appear as, um, um, yeah, it doesn't appear in the discovery. 
It is, however, just as an aside, a term which is talked about a lot in this post-1641 pamphlets when people land in 1640s. They land on shores that have rebels and muskets um, on those shores. It's just quite, I've found about 12 pamphlets that um, refer to that. So, the four seas, though, of course, are not without danger. Back to Richard II again. Remember, those English-Irish nobles who can't dance in Ben Jonson's 1613 Irish mask at court, a mask, of course, which um, so offends the English, old English delegation um, who are in London to complain to the king about Davies' parliament. I'm not sure how that would extend in your place and space of parliament, but there are big spaces here. And they can't dance because, as Dennis reports, I'll try to do uh, Ben Jonson's spelling, to villainous the old Irish shees have cashed away all their fine clothes, and as many ash cost a thousand cows, and Derek adds, and the price of a castle or two upon their backs. I should have put that up to show you how torture it was. But it does seem that these people wear their riches, so rather than investing them in their estates, they're kind of wearing them on the back, so when the ship goes down, the loss goes with it at least temporarily. So I'm getting to the end of the section of geography, and I just wanted to um, give a glimpse of the geography which Shakespeare does not show. So it's a bit that's hidden between Act 3, Scene 1, and Act 3, Scene 2, Richard's 1399 return from Ireland to Wales. And here it's reimagined by the BBC in 2012 as part of the Cultural Olympiad. So a journey from Irish-infested borders to Bolingbroke's Rebellion. And as Shakespeare's Richard II would come to know the journey back to home shores, it, never pr- it can often prove to be a treacherous one. You could have said an awful lot about that quick switch, about how much it looks like a return from the Holy Wars, a 1595 version of a, a, a 1399 event done in 2012. But we'll leave that for questions. So simply that sense of the vertiginous idea of the borders, that panoramic, where am I... Um, coming out onto Milford Haven Strand, probably somewhere in Pembrokeshire. So it reminds us about the dangers that border, border crossing produces. It reminds us, um, thinking about geography, that project so far, we've been talking about the terms of human geography, about borders, finding words, borders, shore, um, frontier, marches, but also laws and other technologies for managing the external world. But there's also a sense in this, that the managing of the external world is affecting the internal world, an interior landscape, which I'm going to move to in this next section. So, gender, noticing borderlines. Um, borderlines is a 19th century term. It comes in, I was interested maybe after the Ordnance Survey, I'm not quite sure, but certainly after Freud, um, and it becomes a kind of diagnostic tool, the notion of borderlines, um, a new technology of thinking about the self and the internal mindscape. So just with that sort of difference in mind, I want to turn now to ask what happens to women's writing in um, Ireland when it attends to the question of borders. What happens when men manage and imagine border crossings in Ireland and England through women? And what happens when women actually cross borders? So turning then to another earlier 
medieval English king, another very powerful imagining of the Irish seas. This time it's in prose. It's from the first narrative of historical events to be penned in English by a woman, Elizabeth Carey. And there was a fantastic paper by John and Ramona yesterday about how much, which just indicates how much we have still to learn about um, the writing life of this extraordinary woman. Um, she was they were detailing the lost years in Ireland as her wife of the Lord Deputy Falkland in the 1620s. And her early play, The Tragedy of Mariam, was also the first original drama in English by a woman. It also had an intriguing... I mentioned Ramona's fantastic edition of that. It has an intriguing Irish connection. It was publicly encouraged by the man whose border words we've just tracked, Sir John Davis. So the history of the life, reign and death of Edward II, first published in 1680, was written in 1626, just after Carey's return from Ireland to England and around the time of her very public and highly controversial conversion to Catholicism. So this particular scene in the history has a distinctly dramatic scene equality. It considers Edward's disgraced lover Gaveston, or homosocial, homoerotic, whatever we term him, Gaveston, as he leaves England's shores to 1308 to serve his second enforced enforced exile as the king's Irish lieutenant. A second time, this monster is sent packing and leaves the kingdom free from his infection. Ireland has made the cage, must mew this haggard, whither he goes as if to execution. With a sad heart, he leaves his great protector, vowing revenge as he may expect to live. Um, if you're not a hawker, like me, mewing the haggard is caging up a wild female hawk um, in full plumage. But Shakespeare then kind of comes to use it as a haggard is a feisty female, one who gets beyond her, her um, proper place. So revenge, a great Senecan force which powers much of Curry's narrative, is here nurtured by distance and by writing. Ireland is figured once again where infection might be found, but also where a wildness might be tamed. Carey stresses how, through Gavis- though Gaveston is in exile, the seashore border between him and the king is itself crisscrossed by this endless stream of love letters. Their bodies were divided, but their affections met with higher inflammation. The intervacuum of their absence hath many reciprocal passages which interchangeably fly before them. The king receives not a syllable, but straight returns with golden interest. Elizabeth Carey is always richly alive to the power of words here, including her own. The lover's infection is disaggregated to an affection, which is also an inflammation. The border is recast as a resonant intervacuum, interchangeably produced with ever more interest. And by the time Edward manages to ensure enough support to keep Gaveston back to London, it seems that any border between the two, even the Irish Sea, has disappeared. News of the king's decision, quote, is scarcely known before like an Irish hubbub that needs nothing but noise to carry it arrived in Ireland. Gaveston returns on what reads like just a direct flight into London upon the wings of passion, made pride by the hope of revenge and a second greatness, and the stage is set for England's upheaval. Gaveston's passionate, triumphant return, of course, could not be more different from Carey's own position in 1626, facing separation from her husband, banishment by her, from her children, from seeing her children, and under house arrest by the king's orders. But her imagination of boundless, borderless, disruptive, same-sex passion and flight across the Irish Sea is multiply transgressive. So Elizabeth Carey's work is extraordinary in its force, but it's also worth stressing that there are others who, like her, 
their work deserves close attention. She was just one of the many early modern women who both imagined what it meant to move between Ireland and England, um, who, who carried with them memories of both places, and who actually made the crossing themselves, sometimes many times. So I have this working categories of four, um, which I'll outline briefly. There's diplomatic wives. So the collected writings of Anne Fanshawe, the letters of Dorothy Osborne show, for example, that even as those women exert a good deal of what we've come to know as soft power, the soft power of first ladies and diplomats' wives, they also publicly support and are themselves broadly compliant with the values, family and political values, of English colonial rule. So secondly, we've got the Amazons. And I think when you read that account of Lady Elizabeth Dowdell's defence of Kilfenny Castle in County Limerick against the, quote, Irish rebels in 1642, it takes a long time to realise that her husband is actually in the house while she's directing the counterattack, which claims 200 Irish dead. So there are definitely Amazons there. There's also this strange category of of dead and dying women. These women are written rather than writing. So... Um, We hear about them because they're described and invoked and mourned often by male companions. So in 1650, for example, in 1650, Arnold Boat, the Hartlip Circle, um, his Irish-born wife travels to Paris where she dies aged 25 of a miscarriage. And he writes the character of a truly virtuous and pious woman um, in, 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 in memory of her. And he includes, he is, after all, in the Hartlib circle, an advocate of the new science, an excruciatingly graphic medical professional account of her death. But he also puts alongside that proud praise for her outstanding Protestant faith, especially strong in this crisscrossing of borders and continental displacement. Several times tampered with, she yet resists to those who wish to convert her to their belief. Another example, in 1679, the philosopher and Quaker Anne Conway, the wife of um, Viscount Edward Conway, dies in Warwickshire while he's on their Irish estate. And he orders that her body be preserved in spirits and placed in a coffin with a light panel and a light well opposite her face so that he can look upon her one more time on his return. And of course, if we make the, the 17th century very, very long and stretch it out to the Welsh shores again, we got Jonathan Swift, 1727. We've all felt this way at Hollyhead, I think. I certainly did a number of times. But, but now the danger of a friend on whom my fears and hopes depend, absent from whom all clients are cursed, with whom I'm happy in the worst, with rage impatient, makes me wait a passage to the land I hate. He's heard that Stella um, Esther is, is dying and he needs to get back. So the third category then. And finally, undiplomatic wives. I count Elizabeth Carey among them. I'd extend that to include embarrassing mothers and demanding siblings. There are quite a lot of those. So women who write and behave in ways which disturb and disrupt. So lots of them are often figured as weak spots, a dangerous source of corruption to the English colonial project. But this is, of course not the only story that we can tell about them, and it's also more often than not very far from the truth. So I'm going to consider one more such woman writer, Lady Eleanor Davis, wife to Sir John. Now, a brief biological sketch, just to serve as introduction. Born Eleanor Audley, the daughter of the George Audley V, um, Earl of Castlehaven, to be, um, she moved to the family estates in Ireland in the not yet county Tyrone and Armagh when she was in her early teenage years. It seems to be between about 
10 and 15 years old. And there in 1609, at the time of plantation, aged about 19, she married Sir John Davis, a near neighbour in Wiltshire, England, as well as in Ireland. He was then aged about 40, deeply submerged in the work of the Ulster Plantation, um, um, remaking of borders, as we've seen, a considerable reputation for his deft exercise of the law. And he was also known for his huge size and fierce temper. So the Earl of Tyrone put it to James I, he was, quote, more fit to be a stage player than a counsel to your majesty. And the couple's three children were born in Ireland. Two of them died there. Richard died in infancy. And Jack, whom 21st century commentators have have sort of post-diagnosed as probably autistic or highly autistic. Um, He drowned in Ireland in 1617. And only their daughter Lucy, so later Lucy Hastings, the Countess of Bedford, who was born in in Dublin in 1613, survived. Of these, we know only the bare facts. And we know them only because um, Lucy tells them in defence of her mother at a later stage in her life. Davies neither writes directly of her time in Ireland nor of the loss of her sons there. She has no more children. So the much-reduced family returned to England in 1619 to enable Sir John to advance his legal career in England. It didn't work out so well. In 1625, just as the 11-year-old Lucy was planning to get married into the Hastings household and was moving there to do so, Eleanor adopted George Carr, a Scottish deaf-mute boy prophet of some fame, into her household. He ran away soon after, but Eleanor herself then experienced her own prophetic awakening and published in 1625 a warning to the dragon and all his angels. The first of almost 70 pamphlets, mostly produced between 1641 and 1653, that she produces in her lifetime. When her furious husband, Sir John, burns her writing, she prophesies his death in December 1626, the night before he's finally going to be inaugurated as a judge by the king, he suddenly and unexpectedly dies. In 1627, she marries again her second husband, Archibald Douglas. He also burns her writings. He too is struck down. And she prophesies again he will be with chronic mental illness. He's more or less in a catatonic state, it seems. Unsurprisingly, she gets a bit of a reputation as a prophetess. So she's consulted at court and she foretells, it seems, the death of Buckingham. Also quite an important moment to be involved in. Her criticisms of the royal household, however, cause her to fall out of favour. And in her later writings of the 1640s, she's very careful to vengefully insist that she accurately prophesied both the civil wars and the execution of Charles. So if she seeks to reveal, and she talks about revealing as her process of prophesying all the time, the divine eternal order of things, Eleanor also frequently shows her to be, herself to be enmeshed in the earthly and the temporal. So in 1631, you'll all know about the famous Castlehaven case where her brother, the second Earl of Castlehaven, is disgraced, accused, among other things, of sodomy and of abetting the rape of his wife by a servant. Eleanor ignores the advice of all those around her, including her husband and daughter, and publishes a series of tracts in his defence. As the notorious trial unfolds, Eleanor rails against her brother's accusers, pointing out, just as he does, how much they have to gain financially in Ireland and in England by having him convicted. If this is a scandalous trial, it's also, as Cynthia Harrop skillfully demonstrated, one of the most legally transformative trials of the 17th century. For first, it created 
a precedent in spousal rights. It allowed a wife to testify against her husband in trial. And second, the decision to allow Castlehaven to be tried by his peers and then convicted and executed, of course, broke new legal ground. And in essence, it paved the way for the trials by peer, which would shortly shortly, um, ensure, ensure the demise first of Wentworth, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, and finally of the king himself in 1649. So Eleanor's pamphlets, of course, opposed both of these radical changes in the perceived advances in the law to defend the interests of her brother. But even in her efforts to maintain the established order and borders of the law, her writings become absolutely enmeshed with an important moment of English legal and constitutional history. Now, there's no doubt that Eleanor Davis leads a multiply disordered life. It's also one that's extraordinarily adventurous. She spends time in the Tower of London. She spends time in Bedlam. She travels to Amsterdam secretly alone to publish her esoteric writings. And once those writings are imported back for Amsterdam, she's imprisoned and the writings are publicly burnt on the orders of the Archbishop of Canterbury. She joins with other women to pour tar on the altar of Litchfield Cathedral and she pursues long, complicated legal battles over property rights as a remarried widow. Of course, as that last example suggests, um, it doesn't take very much for a 17th century wife who has an active writing life to disrupt the patriarchal order. But she emerges through all of this as a formidable woman, a disturbed, fiercely determined writer, publisher and challenger of the law. Now, Davies' editors and biographers and critics have tended to downplay or even to ignore the place of Ireland in both her family and her literary inheritance. So Ferroli, for example, notes that Davies frequently appeals to her aristocratic Irish lineage to confirm her authority, but makes no mention of the fact that she actually lived in Ulster, that she was educated, married, gave birth to, and lost all but one of her children there. Davies herself repeatedly and very specifically dates the beginning of her inspired writing to 1625 in Englefield. And yet, even if there's no surviving evidence, or none yet, given that we're still turning up things about um, Elizabeth Carey, even if there's no evidence that she wrote in Ireland, I'd argue that an account of her life and works needs to recover those early traces, the traces of her early formative years as a young wife and mother in rural Ulster. For Ireland haunts her writings. Her later works in particular are laced with often traumatic references. In the wake of the 1641 rebellion, Samson's Fall, presented to the House, her pamphlet, recounts her vision of a cloth, quote, fastened to a weaver's beam, instantly like a lace rent therefrom, which she then translates into a sign of apocalyptic civil war, portraying forth not only our British Union, fast knit and bound, soon dissolved after, and Irish flourishing plantation, that in a night all undone. She's very careful by all her lineage to always situate it herself as connected to, if not four, five kingdoms, including France, Truchet, Earl of Castlehaven, which is connected to Ireland. By 1645, another pamphlet, The Second Coming of Our Lord, promises a particularly fierce judgment for, quote, those wrathful Irish, as at the day of judgment for them, no quarter. Increasingly, she renders the catastrophes of civil war as highly personal, inscribed in her experience personal and also almost on her body. So in 1649, the everlasting gospel, Apocalypse 14, 
for instance, she notes that the date of her conviction when, when she's convicted for illegally um, bringing back her books is deeply significant. And in like measure, October 23rd, she was committed close prisoner, excommunicated, fined to his majesty's use, £3,000, that's a lot of money, and make public recantation in Paul's Cross as extant on record 12 hand signed thereby also the Edgehill fight and the Irish massacre of 23rd of October. So this date is kind of inscribed. The recurrent references and traumatic memories of Ireland in Eleanor Davis' writing suggest that hers might most usefully be read as the voice of a of course, of a female English Protestant settler, one which doesn't so much chime with the mowing and plantation borders of her husband as amplify sometimes to absolute fever pitch that of Sir John Temple or later Edmund Borlas. So I'm just going to take a moment to look at one of these pamphlets originally published in 1644. And, and I think it's the one where there's a most sustained engagement with Ireland in it, in, in the imagery of it. It's called From the Lady Eleanor, Her Blessing to Her Beloved Daughter, the Right Honourable Lucy, Countess of Huntingdon. Eleanor Davis is hard to read. She um, writes in a kind of obscure anagrammatic style. She's very fond of anagrams, so uh, she plays on her name, the various versions of her name, Eleanor Audley, Eleanor Douglas, Eleanor Davies. Uh, So she comes up with Eleanor Audley as Reveal O Daniel to which some commentators reply, have you noticed that it's already also an anagram of never so mad a lady? And I think that that it's interesting that 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 kind of, um, which is a 1630s translation of her name after the Castlehaven, um, kind of just puts her in an archive of madness. There's there's more going on. Within this pamphlet, we find one of her many, um, several... um, Sorry, it's a prophetic vision. So she's got the four beasts of the apocalypse as mapped onto the four kingdoms. Um, and she includes Wales in that, so England's got Ireland as Wales. Um, she comes across, I think, in her writing, if Elizabeth Carey is the well-educated, intelligent, arg- arguer through of important um, uh, disputes, something that you were talking about yesterday... Um, Eleanor Davis comes across as she links with the female prophetesses who are writing in the 1640s in England, but she's also pretty well educated, I think. She has a sentence structure to her, but she still uses that imagistic shorthand. So in a sense, she's the opposite of Carrie, if you like, who really cares about words and arguments and writing. Um, The pamphlet is one from a mother to the surviving daughter, And it's one which has the most trace of Ireland, as I said, or at least of her Irish experience, her shared Irish experience with her daughter within it. On the many beasts of the apocalypse to come, one is a Marian mother, female with a hint of Irish degeneracy. So you can see those words that echo the way through divisions and massacres, the mass, and also the slip come out of the bear garden, not a lily, but a slip come out of the bear garden, everything degenerate. And so wild. So it's a vocab that climbs, certainly not with John Davis's in quite the same way, but with tropes that we've all heard before from Spencer onwards. 
and, and, and well before that. But she goes on here to develop her Irish monster, a fourth beast which starts out as a classical monster, a harpy, but is very quickly transfigured into an Irish harp, and an Irish harp that's understood in some detail. So the description has like almost a soundscape. It's out of tune, it's discordant. So it's got iron teeth, 13, and nails of brass to be short. The Irish harp demonstrated like if there were an instrument not a little out of tune as issues stamping all underfoot God's law, human law. Um, the picture I've put in there is, um, well, as you can see, a 17th century Irish harp, which I think helps us when we get to her, the third mention of the harp, where she goes on to disembody this monster still further, to take it down to bare bones and rib, a kind of shipwreck image almost. I offer some... The, uh, th- this, this idea of the talk of tyrants. Um, and so far, the harp, like the very forequarter or ribs in form or likeness, has strung in that matter, strung in that matter sideways. And the character of tyrants of no long continuous, raising up and setting lower, like the rest, according to their will, made a law, changing and altering when they please. So it's an unruly shape the Irish harp, and it's stretched to being overstrung. So what do we do with that? What claims do we make here? Maybe she had harp lessons in Ulster as a child and really hated them. (laughs) I don't know, maybe. But what I'm more interested in here is that a letter from a mother to a daughter resonates with their shared experience of Ireland, that when she wants to articulate something um, in Important to both of them, she reaches for the Irish harp. Now, it's Lucy who inherits her father's land in Ireland. She bypasses her mother, and eventually the lands are sold to raise the dowry money for her daughter's marriages. It's also Lucy who becomes the defender of her mother's reputation. And her mother is not a kind woman. She calls her a Jezebel. She tries to disinherit her, though you can't disinherit a daughter if you don't have any shared inheritance. She finds that. Um, when, her, when Lucy loses a son to smallpox and writes her mother a letter while her mother's in Bedlam, she says, yes, I know because I had a vision last night of a headless child born and the midwife held it and it cried and cried and cried and I couldn't stop it crying. Not a very sympathetic message to send back. Um, but Lucy does become this guardian of her mother's reputation. She seems to be responsible for the 45 tracts which are gathered in one volume in the Folger Library and there's also a volume in the San Marino Library in California of 12 letters from Lady Davis to her daughter so they've sort of been parceled up and kept for posterity and when people attack her reputation both in court and later in literary tracts around the 1660s Lucy steps in to 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 defend her So there is a kind of quiet glimpse of daughterly custodianship here. And I suppose we get that also with Elizabeth Carey when her life is is written by her daughter, uh, who's now a nun in Cambrai in the 1640s. And there's certainly no record of Lucy, a poet in her own right and a great patron of the arts, ever burning her mother's work. So, um, Yasser D.N.B., Online. On the article of Sir John Davis, we drew Louis Limsal and Irona briefly. 
recounting the last few years of David's life, the thwarting of his literary talents and the ambitions as he languishes in Englefield House, waiting for that elusive court appointment. Sean Kelsey cites Polish. From that time until his death in 1626, Davies comes to the uncomfortable experience of staring across the breakfast table at a hopelessly insane wife, deft in mourning. And Kelsey later returns, giving his own spin on that, to the hopelessly insane Eleanor, this time in her own words, noting that at St John's death, his wife survived and remarried, visiting on her new husband, Sir Archibald. <laughs> Um, sufferings almost identical to those undergone by the first, who himself failed to elude her for very long, she being buried beside him in 1652. So this malevolent spectre of Eleanor Davies might sit well with a tragically inflected account of her own husband's legal career, but it does scant justice to her compelling life story and also her extraordinary writing career. Diane Watt's excellent brief biography on Eleanor sits a few pages away in the Oxford DNB, very close by that of Eleanor's husband, a bit like the graves. But as yet, no hyperlink connects the two. And if it did, it would become clear that the reason that Eleanor's mourning is because her husband had burnt the writings she so frequently referred to as her, quote, babes. So he silenced her as both wife and mother. Now, after two fantastic days of interdisciplinary discussions, and also, I'd have to say, at the end of the summer, which was really a celebration of the extraordinary Cambridge history of Ireland with that plurality of voices um, that it's invoked, and it's going to take a while to digest all of that. It might seem a bit churlish to remind people about the silences and the gaps, but the view from Eleanor's side of the marital breakfast table does suggest that there's still a long way to go before monumental histories or even biographical sketches of great men admit and accommodate the women textual studies, the family histories, the cross-three-border kingdom, sorry, cross-three-kingdom border dialogues, which have so animated early modern scholarship in recent years. So I've asked the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography to create a hyperlink between husband and wife, which will forge this. And I kind of think that such connections and revisions might be one of the most valuable contributions that I've made to research this year in that way. So, genre. I've spent a good deal of time thinking about tragic comedy as an extraordinary genre which lives in Ireland in the 17th century. Um, so... Langartha, for example, is a play that, if it were known to commentators, was known because it has the only definition of tragicomedy in English in the early modern period that's kind of at the end of the um, printed version. But in editing it, I think one of the things that we come across is this notion of layering, of how tragedy is layered on comedy, is layered on tragedy in this generic sense of what's going on. So Orrery, Catherine Phillips, many of the big figures in the, in the, in the um, late in the Restoration period are involved in, in producing tragic comedy. And of course, tragic comedy has a long history within Irish literature as well, by which I mean Irish literature in English when I'm talking coming back out of the uh, Tudor and Stuart period into sort of surfacing into the modern again. So what I'd, one of the things that I discovered when editing Langartha and one of the questions that I had to ask was, how conscious was the 1630s of their Viking past? Burnell, lots of English critics 
criticised, wondered why on earth this Irishman was writing about the Vikings. So Langartha is the tale of a Norwegian Amazon, uh, an allegorically, or allegorically mapped onto the three kingdoms in the um, days before civil war uh, and the Irish 1641 rebellion, Brexit. So tragic comedy and borders um, and how we remap a landscape of borders you discover that Burnell, guess what, lives in a former high palace of the Vikings. So this, this sense of bordering, of layering of landscape is absolutely alive to him and to his daughter. So had you been last weekend, um, the tragic comedy for the border, Waiting for Godot, one of those things that we think of as an extraordinary example of um, um, Anglo-Irish literature. English literature language, is actually called Waiting for Godot, a tragic comedy when it's first done. So there's a kind of notion of the long history of tragic comedy in this. So here we have Anthony Gormley's tree, which you walk towards. We're a week too late for that. Something about layering, something about looking at lands that cross border the UNESCO Global Geopark, the first transnational geopark in the world. It takes us back, of course, to the 1590s and um, one of the digital projects that is in development and hasn't been mentioned here, though I know Pat talked at this um, conference last year, the McMorris project, where when we unpack the versions of, of um, the versions of Munster that we see in the 1590s, we get back to very detailed um, notions of where exactly it was that Spencer lived and how many countries and other Bardic uh, poets he was living alongside and overlapping with. So that project, I think, to bring all of that, um, those names into our field of reference for the early modern poet, as, certainly as a student of English and a, a kind of scholar of English language, I'm, I'm really looking forward to building that in for future students. But what I'm going to do in the end is, and I am at the end now, thinking of tragic comedy as a force for the future and something that generically was born in the 17th century. So I'm going to do the thing that all week I've been advising my MA students not to do, which is hand over the last words of their talk to another person. And that other person is another site of refugees. They're fleeing a beleaguered city. They're doing so with a neighbour's child who is going off to slay monsters, an English relative who's visiting but getting unused to accommodating his new home. Um, And they're being forced from their city to cross a border. So I'm going to leave you with a little excerpt, which I hope for, (laughs) of last one, last woman border crossing.
Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.